0: Hello, I'm Ben Eagle, a podcaster, journalist, and rural communications consultant. And welcome to Rural Business Focus. This is the podcast for rural businesses and those looking to start a business in the countryside. Episodes are released each Tuesday to inspire and support you to be your very best, both personally and for your business. Please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. And if you think this episode will help someone you know, forward it on to them. It's the only way the show grows by you sharing it. So thank you for that. But now, Let's start today's show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of Rural Business Focus. Um, Today, we're talking about the planning system. Um, It's perhaps not something that many of us get too excited about, but for many of you, navigating your way through it will be a vital part of developing your business. So have you had a project where you've had to go through planning and face challenges? How well-versed in planning do you feel? Do you have an upcoming project that will require planning, but you're not fully comfortable with moving ahead yet? Well, today's episode will hopefully help you, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by Ben Worf from Worf Rural Planning, who are rural planning specialists based in Cheshire. Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for uh, inviting me.
0: It's it's my pleasure. Tell us a bit about Worf Rural Planning and and what you do.
1: So, Worf Rural Planning, uh, we are a team of eight people, and um, we specialise in Planning, anything to do with planning uh, in the countryside. And so we work for a lot of agricultural clients, um, we do quite a lot of course, residential, we do commercial, um, recreation, and tourism, and anything from um, permitted developments through to full planning for new new projects, uh, through to people who've got planning enforcement issues, uh, anything to do with planning, that's what we're doing day in, day out. And we've got a mixture of backgrounds. Um, some public sector people that were planning officers and some private sector. Okay, and uh, we are um, still looking to expand the team. So if anybody listening and uh, is into planning, then fantastic. Rather than getting in touch,
0: and we're we're going to go into some of those areas today. But I thought, could we start just uh, by getting your sort of point of view on on the context? Of the changes that have been happening in the countryside, but I mean, both on farms, but also perhaps more widely. And I suppose critically linked to that, how the planning system is adapting to those changes, if at all.
1: Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the overriding thing that we've seen um, for really since post World War II is the amalgamation of existing farms. So, and and it's a continuous trend and it's ongoing today as, as much as ever in that we are getting fewer farms uh, that are getting bigger and they are expanding. Um, And that's really due to the amalgamation um, due to the economics in the industry, people retiring with no no successor. Um, uh, So the the farm sizes um, continually get bigger. Um, And what that means is we're seeing more and more redundant farmsteads. So there's more farmsteads that are falling out of agricultural production which is leaving buildings that can be uh, converted or redeveloped into other purposes. Uh, but the other end of the scale, we're seeing the farmsteads that are remaining are wanting to expand and we're seeing big new farmsteads being constructed, large new portal frames, you know, multiple sheds going up um, to support those, those ongoing farms. Coupled with that, um, we're also seeing a consolidation of where essential agricultural workers need to live. Um, so on several farms now, we're doing applications for third or fourth agricultural worker dwellings on those farms because, due to the number of livestock on the farm, the size of operations, they need more people on that site. And that's one common area where planning authorities need a bit of, you know, we need to sort of talk them through the process, talk them through what's going on, and explain you know, why you need so many people on one site.
0: Okay. So, I mean, it's linked to sort of the the, the second part of that question, then, I mean, in terms of how how planning itself, let's have, can we have some context on sort of how planning itself has maybe changed and developed.
1: the The, the answer is really not very much. Um, you know, we've seen an increase in the size, the minimum, uh, the maximum size on permitted development sheds. So you used to be able to do four hundred and sixty five square meters, you can now do a thousand square meters, which is you know it's a it's a benefit, it's a, it's, it's a bigger shed, but ultimately the, the there aren't many other changes are really Supporting the, the the change in the in the structure of the agriculture industry, and it's, it's you know it's our job really to bring planners um, and councillors and other interested parties try and educate them about what's going on, the pressures that agriculture is under, and make yep. make the case for these things because there there hasn't really been much of a change in you know how that's supported to be honest.
0: Okay, interesting. So we're now going to go and look at a number of different development categories um, and really get your advice on what's allowed and and what the planning system restricts. Um, So firstly, what are the main permitted developments for farms, but also in the wider countryside?
1: Um, So on farms, we've had what's known as um, part six permitted development for quite a long time on farms. And that's what I was referring to earlier, but you've got the maximum size of up to a 1000 square metres for a new agricultural building and that's been around for quite a long time and, and um, you know and, and this is very useful tool it's the, generally the quickest cheapest easiest way for getting permission for you know a decent sized shed um coupled with that um that also covers um farm tracks that can can done under permitted development engineering operations um construction of slurry stores um uh, all, again all covered under the part six permitted development um the Three, well, sort of, yeah, three big changes that happened in two thousand and fourteen um, was the introduction of uh, class Q, class R, and class S, which were all relevant to agricultural permitted development. And the class Q allows the conversion of an agricultural building to a dwelling, and it's okay. and, and potentially multiple dwellings. You can do up to five dwellings and up to eight hundred and sixty-five square meters. Um, the class R allows the conversion to a um, so a flexible use class that allows up to 500 square meters and that covers what is now um, class e um b8 for storage and c1 which is for hotel and guest house use and class s which is uh, much less used um but that actually allows a conversion of 500 square meters to a state-funded school and these were all introduced in 2014 and uh, uh really an absolute game changer for agriculture
0: Okay, so, is it, so that, that has really, really ushered in some serious change, then.
1: Well, yeah, I say for agriculture. I mean, it, it's the conversion of buildings from agriculture to, to different uses. Yeah. Um, but it and enables buildings that were really otherwise underutilized or redundant to be brought back into active economic use, and that's why the government at the time introduced those changes. It all came about sort of post two thousand and eight recession. Coalition government wanted more buildings to be brought into active economic use, so saw that redundant buildings in the countryside, and that's why they introduced these classes of um, permitted development as new legislation. The the unfortunate thing is um, most local authorities aren't really embracing the spirit of the legislation, Uh, and a head of planning at a a local authority recently said to me, well, this, this legislation rails against our planning policies. And so there's a big tension there between what the intent was with these things with national government and what the practical application on the ground is by planning officers. And again, but that's where you know we come in to actually make maximum use of these things.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been some mention in the press recently about reforms that in essence ease restrictions of to the conversion of disused farm buildings into residential properties. Um, including in National Parks and AONBs. Um Have you got any more on that?
1: Um, well, we saw the, the press releases at the time um, saying that basically the thought was that Class Q at the moment isn't allowed in National Parks and AONBs, and it was inferred that that was going to be relaxed. Um, we actually followed up on that to see where that news was, was coming from. Um, it was reported it was sort of murmurings coming out of uh, 10 Downing Street, but we haven't actually seen anything concrete in that regard yet, um, okay. official from government. I mean, it, it would be good if it does, you know, it'd be very, very welcome, um, uh, you know, and see on, on more of that sort of thing. But at uh, the moment, there's, there's nothing firm on the horizon that I'm aware of from that.
0: Okay. And there's also been obviously a lot of rhetoric on, the government's levelling up and regeneration, um mm. the, both the bill and, and, and just wider conversations about that as well. Uh, if you got, have you got anything, anything more to add on that
1: as well? Is there anything actually concrete that's coming through? um For rural planning, it seems like a bit of a missed opportunity at the moment. Um, there isn't much in there that's a great deal of assistance. Certainly, you know nothing to the extent of the 2014 changes that came in. I mean, one thing that will be probably possibly relevant to some listeners, um, is the change to the time limit on enforcement. Um, Some people will be familiar with the four-year rule and the the ten-year rule. Um, And very quickly, the four-year rule is for operational development. If it's not enforced within that time, um, then it um, becomes immune from enforcement action just by the passage of time. Um, If it's a change of use, um, then it requires ten years. Uh, and one of the things in the bill is actually to make everything ten years and, and not have a four-year limit. Okay. Um, so that you know will possibly affect some, some people. Um, but other than that, there's no, you know they're the, the talking about trying to streamline the planning process, trying to make it more digital. So you know, hopefully, some of those things will help. But there's nothing really radical on the horizon. And um, the, one, the one thing I, you know I, I would like to um, see brought in is for for rural areas is to have a r- bit more of a relaxation around the rural exception site policies. Most authorities have one, um, and this is where you can build affordable housing adjacent to a, a village. Yep. But most of them limit the number of units to about to about 10. And the facts speak for themselves that these policies have ex- existed for quite a long time, but the uptake is is very limited. You know, you just don't see many sites these sites coming forward. And um, the fact is, uh, those numbers, they're just not not viable. They're not, there isn't the financial incentive there for the landowner to really sort of engage with the process. Uh, And for me, 10 is a very arbitrary number. So they're applying that to all villages, regardless of of size, generally. Um, And, you know, quite an easy change would be to make it either a percentage of the number of houses in the village or just just increase that that limit and make affordable housing, rural exception sites, more economically viable and then that we would see that sort of stimulate the market but at the moment you just don't see many coming forward at all
0: just pausing on the conversation we've been there to tell you about a brand new agricultural podcast which i'm recommending there's only been one episode so far but i'm looking forward to the next one um, it comes from cheffins it's presented by ed mowbray and it's called auction talk uh, the first episode details the sale of a 1979 County 1474 short nose tractor, which sold for a whopping 150,000 pounds, making it the second most expensive classic tractor sold to date. The record was 214,400 pounds for a 1982 County, um, which Cheffin sold back in April. Anyway, do go and check that podcast out. I put the link in the show notes, and good luck to Cheffins with it. Here's a very short clip of the tractor sale before we go back to Ben.
1: At £150,000 to my right, you're out of the back, and you're out online. At £150,000 a bid now, at
0: 150000 150, at £150,000 on bid Then at one You're out running front, you're out online. The bid is to my right, at £150,000 once, at £150,000 twice... It's going to be sold, ladies and gentlemen, for the third and final time. And I sell this time and away. Then
1: two so more right then at one hundred
0: and fifty thousand pounds. Your bid, sir, one hundred and fifty. Thank you. Let's uh, let's dive into uh, sort of specific projects. Um, so, what kinds of development require full planning?
1: Ones a, typically what we're working on at the moment is we're doing a lot of um, new farm buildings. Uh, there's a lot of grain stores at the minute. We're doing uh, new dairy setups, but. Basically, any any farm building of that ilk that doesn't fit within permitted development will definitely require full planning. So if it's more than um, 1,000 square metres, or if it's for livestock and it's within 400 metres of a protected building, then it requires um, full planning. Um, The change of use of farm buildings to... Quite a lot of diversification going on, um, but also a lot of people going sort of more niche. Um, you know, have got the old adage of uh, get bigger or, or get niche. And so we're seeing a lot of people actually starting to process their own milk and setting up their own dairy setups. And so it's a change of use from in some cases, you know, of an existing building to be able to, to be able to do that. Um so, you know, still quite a lot of farm shop development, that side of things. we are moving to, to retail. So again, all those things still need um full planning. Equally, agricultural worker dwellings, you know, when we're looking for um to have more people living living on site to support the to support the business, the farm, uh, that that's all needs full planning. So it's um it's really any any changes of use of buildings um or any actual building works, um, whether it's a new building or it's actually materially altering. An existing building um require full planning
0: hmm. just a of interest um from a farm diversification point of view mm-hmm. are there any particular projects um or kinds of projects kinds of diversifications that you're seeing more of at the moment
1: i think the um, dairy processing i mean we're in, we're in cheshire so a yeah, big, yeah. big, 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 dairy, big dairy country Yeah. Uh, so we are yeah there's more people setting up um I, you know from at different scales, you know, it's people going sort, of sort of the uh, single raw milk vending machine right through to actually a, a whole dairy producing all sorts of different dairy products, um, uh, you know, which was something probably in five years ago, um, we weren't really seeing any, anything of that nature.
0: So the planning process itself, could you take us through a standard planning process for, for anyone who hasn't been through that process yet, but is perhaps about to embark on it? What, what should they expect?
1: There's two main categories that'll be relevant to, to listeners. There's my, minor schemes and major schemes. Uh, and the threshold between the two is, is down to the size, and that will vary between authority. But a um, if, if it was a very straightforward farm building, it'd probably fall into the uh, minor category. And under that process, it's... It's determined under what's called delegated authority. And that's where the planning officer makes the decision. So the first step is creating the, the application. Um, so that's the um, all of the information that needs to go into first of all create the design, but then support it and justify it. Now, depending on the complexity of it, it might just be some simple plans of the building and, and a short statement. In other cases, it might be multiple different disciplines know, various different consultants covering noise, odour, um, ammonia, transport, landscaping, and so on. Um, so you need to collect all the information that's required get to the input from all these different specialists. And again, that's where our role comes in is, is coordinating all those people to make yep. sure you bring everything together so you've got a cohesive application that addresses all of the points that will be of concern to the council. Um, and on the bigger schemes, um, you know, past that will be engaging, you know, with, with some of the locals as well and getting other people's uh, input and through our consultation. But bring the application together, um, submit it to the council, and then in theory it should be an eight-week determination period. And, you know, before COVID, that eight might have sort of stretched to, to 12 or 14 weeks. Uh, during that period – there will be responses from consultees so the council might throw out to uh, diff- different bodies or people within their own council such as you know the council's ecologists from their opinion on it so all these consultee responses are coming in and um, you know we'll be monitoring those through the process and responding where necessary if issues are raised look to address those um so that as it moves towards the determination date we want to get to a point where we haven't got any outstanding objections from consultees um and um the case officer is then able to assess all of the information, um, write a report for forming a a decision uh, and hopefully issue the approval. Um, So that's under the minor scheme. Um, If it's a a major scheme, so it's above the size threshold, then it's quite likely it would go to the council's committee for determination. uh, And in that process, the officer will simply write a report with a recommendation but then you have the extra step that it then goes before the council's or one of the council's planning committees, where there'll probably be up to maybe sort of 12 uh, elected councillors that are members of this committee, and they will actually, having listened to uh, various different speakers, they will then debate the merits of the scheme uh, and then put it to a vote and a majority vote passes it. So they're the two main schemes, the uh, the, the minor and the major. Now, like I said, the main, the Niners were taking, you know, they were taking around 12 weeks. They, they can now be taking 9 to 12 months is what wow. we're kind of experiencing. Uh, and, and the majors, um, you know, they should have been done in 13 weeks previously. You know, they might go to 16 or 18. But again, you know, they're taking, we've been seeing, you know, at least sort of a year on a lot of those things. I'm pleased to say that I think some of the authorities, well, quite a few authorities, are now really actually quite catching up, and some of those time is, is, is dropping. But some are, you know, still not much improved on their post-COVID time lags. Yeah. So the, one of the overarching messages is that at the moment is you know be prepared to allow quite a lot of time. to score yeah. Thinking about something, start early.
0: I mean, how how much of that is is sheer backlog of work, and how much is it just simply there just aren't enough planning offices in the system?
1: Um, well, yeah, it's, 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 you're right. It's absolutely absolute combination of both. So there was a bit of a backlog at the start of COVID. Then, obviously, as COVID was going on, they lost a lot of resource, lost a lot of time because, obviously, you know, pe- people off and people leaving and so on. Um, but coupled with that, it was, there was a big spike in demand through COVID um, because there was a lot of people at, at home, um, you know, wondering what to do with their houses and business. So, you we, we know, we saw... Um, and for us, really, tidal wave of the work. It's um, you know, and the authorities had the same. So you, you know, you started off on the back foot, and then they had uh, increased demand and decreased supply. So it's uh, it was a bit of you know, perfect storm really for the local authorities. But um, they there's, you know, there's no doubt about it. They are currently under resourced for the level of work um, that's, that's put before them. Um, but one of my one of my pet gripes is the um the way that the statistics on the timeline for planning is is managed. And that if somebody agrees to an extension of time on their application, um which the planning officers will always try and ask for, is then it is reported as being determined in time. So something can take 12 yeah, months. Okay. But because you've agreed to an extension of time, it goes down to the statistics as in time, and that's yeah. what's getting reported back to uh to the politicians and uh you know i think it's important for you know everybody to uh, make sure the politicians understand the, the reality and try and help out the authorities by uh, trying to you know encourage politicians to get more res- resource to them
0: uh, let's talk about the rural housing market generally um from where you are see what, what does the rural housing market look like at the moment in terms of supply and demand and, and is the picture similar everywhere? Um, a very uh, a very big question to uh, to, yeah. to to summarize and answer in a couple of minutes <laughs>
1: yeah i mean from our experience we do a, a, quite a lot of replacement dwellings so as where well, sitting so, you know, buys a house one's not down but so that's a one for one but bigger bigger dwelling we do a few infill plots but you know there's not many left in and around villages now so uh, the, you know that gets a a few houses but not many there's not we don't see a lot of areas allocated for new housing on villages you know 2012 sustainability moved up the agenda so a lot of authorities are really trying to concentrate new development around towns um you know and much less so uh, around villages. Um, so there really isn't much new supply and as i was saying af- earlier, the affordable housing you know we're just not seeing many sides of that coming forward just due to the, the economics of it. But at the same time, there is definitely massive demand. So any 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 houses that do come available in villages and rural towns are in, are in big demand. So um, to give a typical example, you know, we did a barn conversion recently, not far from here, um, and it was basically a, a barn turned into a pair of houses, about two and a half thousand square feet each, um, and sold um, once they were developed for one point two million apiece. So and, and that was people moving out of towns. Yep this continuous trend of counter urbanization and people paying a lot of money yep. for uh for for houses in the countryside so there's that there's that huge demand there so anybody that's born in a you know and there's been countless studies on this so you know over the last i don't know uh, 20 years in that anybody born in, in in a rural village will find it enormously difficult to be able to buy you know buy a house in the area that they've they've grown up because there just isn't that supply coming through And I know that, you know, the CLA and a few have done done a lot of lobbying about it, but we're still not seeing really any much or concrete help coming through the system.
0: Let's start to wrap this up. Um, Apart from being patient, I suppose, what Mm. advice would you give to a listener about to embark on a planning application?
1: I would say get, get some advice early. The planning system is becoming more and more complex, and, you know, it's quite easy to say or do the wrong thing that can then affect the options that are available to you later on. And so, you know, big advocates of, you know, get some advice early. And even if that is just pointing people in the right direction, um, it's time and money well spent. One of the biggest things around that, I'd say, is being realistic um, in terms of understanding the site, understanding the planning policies, um, what's going to influence the decision, and particularly the politics of the area. Because, the politics can vary massively between different authorities, some that are sort of very committee-led, um, and councillors aren't particularly engaged. So the decisions are more officer-led, whereas other authorities, maybe cabinet-led, and you'll have a councillor who's a portfolio holder, who will be much more engaged in these matters, can and can do much more to um to influence things. So I think you know, under- understanding the site uh, and the influences, you know, being realistic about what's what's achievable um, is important. The second, I'd say, is understanding your priorities, um, and, that, and, I, and that's in terms of time, cost, and then re- thirdly, is sort of like the balance of risk and ambition, because all those three things into play, and, and you can't you can't have the most uh, ambitious scheme, you know, with no risk, uh, very quickly, it doesn't cost much, uh, and so it's about you know a, a good advisor, you know, will counsel somebody like that and, and draw out those those priorities to work out what is the appropriate strategy for what you're what you're trying to achieve. It's important to um, to just go into it, in particular something's going to be controversial. Is you know knowing that people will disagree with you, and that you know two, two people can look at the same thing and, and see it very differently. And it's yeah, just absolutely for that journey, and you know the emotions that that come along with that, and how to to deal with it. Actively managing the process as well is you know, is really important. So you know once you've put something in is making sure it is continuously managed, you know, see some people are going to drop applications in and forget about them and hope something happens. Um, so it's, you know, it's important to engage with it and stick with it the whole way through. Perfect.
0: Um, and finally, and I ask every guest who comes on the show, this, um, do you have any other rural businesses or, or social media accounts that you would like to uh, give a little plug?
1: What I'd like to tell you about is um, it's my, my wife's business is, um, Sa- Sapling eggs, um, which is our free range egg farm. Yep, and um, it's also she's known locally as the uh, as the egg lady. And uh, we are in a situation where we were um, selling all, all, all our eggs to a packer who was then selling obviously onto the supermarkets. So we okay. had the typical thing of increasing feed price, decreasing egg price, yep. disappearing margin. Yep. Yeah, you know, and it was either you know the old adage of well we've got to get, get bigger or get out, and um, decided we didn't want to go down uh, the getting bigger route, so we thought well actually we'll go a bit we'll go more niche and started selling the the eggs ourselves, uh, and now so we, we sell all of the the eggs ourselves. We've got a website um, Sa- sapling eggs where people can go onto and they can order a subscription for eggs that are then delivered weekly, fortnightly or monthly and um, I'm, I'm really proud of what we've done because it's a good example of how actually the, consu- the consumer is better off, the producer is is better off, yeah. the hens are better off, the environment is better off and it's, a, and it's a win-win for everybody and it's about us being able to connect direct with our customer and it's really rewarding that then you know, the feedback that comes back and the message we get back being able to you know, take the tray of eggs produced by the hens and you know, deliver it direct to our customers down the road, who really enjoy it, uh, and you know, and, and tell us about it. So, it's um, it's been really rewarding, and you know, I would wholeheartedly um, encourage other people to, uh, to you know to look to do the same. And I know Andy Venables and his team yep. at um, Hills Green, they're obviously setting up trying to assist people with that with the uh, mission Ag. And so, you know, I'd probably encourage people to travel with them and uh, you know see what else they can do on that line because you know the people are happy to pay. A, you know a, a very fair price for produce uh, and you know and farmers are, are very good at producing that and by connecting the two things together i think so a, a huge win win for the industry fantastic
0: well, that's a great good news story thanks ben for that and, and thank you so much for uh, uh telling us more more about the, the subject of planning and uh, yeah wish you luck with with all the growth that you have there as well Next time um, on the podcast, we will be talking about rural connection, rural broadband. And uh, just a plug also for our sister podcast, Meet the Farmers. On this week's episode, uh, we have our harvest special, hearing from farmers across the country on how harvest has been for them this year. Um, But for now, I'll leave you in the way that I leave you every episode. Try to do one thing that helps you progress this week and one thing that helps someone else keep focused. And I will see you next time.